This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the new season. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. The pressures of the pandemic have many nurses re-evaluating their career path. Let's hear from them. My name is Allison Palayo, and I'm a nurse practitioner. My name is Carly Owen. I'm a registered nurse. I'm Hallie Brin. I'm a nurse practitioner. In a word, we're overworked. Chronic understaffing, as well as constant new protocols that are rolling out every couple of weeks or so, has made our job pretty unrelenting. You can feel the effects of COVID. There's staffing shortages, working with less. COVID units have no visitors, so you're you're dealing with really sick patients that are so scared and they can't even get a hug. They can't have a family member come. So you're really more responsible for the emotional care and the spiritual care of the patient. I see the worst of the worst and I see kids that have lost both of their parents from this. Nurses thought there would maybe be relief at some point. And if that's not kicking in, they're starting to look and see what's more sustainable for them. The core belief for me has always been that the nurses are there to care for you, not just the patient, but the family in your worst time. One of the things I love about working in the inpatient setting is that there's a high level of interdisciplinary teamwork, which means the doctor, the pharmacist, the nurse practitioner, the bedside nurse, and sometimes a fellow or a medical student. Traditionally, they come bedside and they all have a conversation about how that patient's doing and what we can do to optimize their care in the hospital. With COVID, those meetings have moved to Zoom calls a lot. Some of that special sauce that happens when you work in an interdisciplinary team is being lost. And I think we're still learning and understanding what kind of implications that'll have. Now we have Gretchen Berlin. She's a registered nurse and senior partner here at McKinsey. She's here to discuss McKinsey's research on why there's an alarming number of nurses thinking of leaving the field and what can be done to improve the working conditions for this essential workforce. And right after, we'll hear from David Babulal, an associate partner at McKinsey. They share with us findings from McKinsey's first ever report about being transgender at work. Gretchen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Same to you. Let's start with a little bit of context. Nurses have been on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis for nearly two years now. Infection rates are surging. What are you hearing on the ground about how nurses are feeling at this juncture? It's a great question. I think nurses are not a monolithic group. And as you mentioned, I think it varies quite significantly kind of across the country and what they're facing. In general, demands on nurses were high even before COVID. Across the country and really across the world, we have an aging population. We have a population that's getting sicker and needs more care. With that as the starting point, they launched into COVID. Now, fast forward to today, a lot of those nurses are tired. In any crisis situation, you're running on adrenaline and trying to get through to the other side. What has become clearer as the months have come on, Delta came, now Omicron, uncertainty, is there may not be a magical end of the tunnel, as you said. And that is a very different world to be facing. 
Now, there's been undercurrents of changes in folks leaving the profession, increased demand for non-COVID care that has added additional strain. And it's a lot of pressure, a lot of demands day to day, and then month to month, and potentially not a lot of relief in the near-term future. And we see resignation generally in the zeitgeist in the wake of the pandemic. Quitting is up sort of across the board in different industries. And our own great attrition research shows that intent to quit continues to be heightened. How do nurses stand there? And are there factors that are specifically driving nurses out the door? Nurses are no exception to our research around the likelihood of folks to leave their profession. We ran a survey that showed about 20% of folks were looking to leave. What we've seen, interestingly, in the healthcare market in recent months is massive competition through things like retention bonuses, attraction bonuses for new hires, frankly, in a way that is largely unsustainable because taking one nurse from one care setting to another results in instability in both places and then potentially going back to exactly you know where they came from. I think the more troubling piece is nurses actually exiting the profession altogether. We do see some of that. It's not just a challenge that the U.S. is facing as well. We hear it from health systems around the world. To answer your question as what drives them to leave, although we see a lot around compensation, and yes, we need to pay nurses adequately for the service and value that they're delivering, but at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to the support and recognition that they feel in their workplace from their leaders, their managers, their team, through things like recognition, through ensuring their sufficient staffing, sufficient respite and gratitude, frankly. Presumably, there's variability in care settings, but are you seeing extremities of workload, insufficient staffing, emotional toll on nurses? right now as the pandemic drags on? Yes. You can almost draw a timeline of the pandemic. It started at the beginning, as I said, in kind of this crisis moment where many health systems were flexing staff in a variety of ways. You had nurses who were historically nurses in the OR were becoming ICU nurses or who were accustomed to running ventilators moving over onto COVID units. You had nurses in outpatient settings moving into inpatient. We had nurses crossing state lines and operating in health systems they never had before. All of that was happening with, frankly, most non-COVID care being delayed. Health systems have been doing everything they can to ensure sufficient staffing, but it has been a challenge to meet the need, to say the least. And it's had to be met by contract labor and additional support, which is extremely expensive and often can be challenging to integrate into the regular care team. And so whether you have those staffing challenges or you have variability in the workload from either COVID and non-COVID patients, we haven't yet hit a new normal in the health system. You know, we continue to see reports coming out about the impact of delayed care, and that still hasn't fully run its course through the system. We have done surveys of health systems every quarter, and they're still projecting that surgical backlogs, preventative backlogs are not yet through the system. It feels like nurses have always been required to be incredibly resilient. Nurses are sort of expected to behave heroically, but nurses are also human 
beings, and we're seeing a rise in clinician burnout across the board. Is mental health a new issue for nurses, or have nurses been suffering under the radar for longer than many of us might have suspected? I don't think mental health is a new issue in nursing at all. I mean, look, I think mental health in general across the country is an underappreciated, under-discussed issue in the entire population, and nurses are no exception to that. There are many parts of care that have provided support and respite for clinical teams. For example, uh, pediatric hospitals will allow rotations between cardiac ICUs, step-down units, and more outpatient settings to allow nurses to not have to be in the most critical upsetting care settings day in, day out in perpetuity. We haven't really built in that decompression space for a lot of healthcare. And it's interesting, you use the word burnout. There's a lot of sensitivity around the word in healthcare, and rightly so, as some believe it, it implies that the clinicians themselves aren't resilient enough to deal with what is happening, when in reality, what is happening is an untenable situation for, for anyone to individually just kind of survive it, let alone thrive. We as society need to lift up these professions. In the last two years, we've had probably 10 different parades for different professional sports teams who have won championships. And yes, these events bring great joy to society. But where is that kind of support and recognition at just kind of the community level for what our frontline heroes are doing day in and day out? Right. It's a really good point. At the beginning of the pandemic, I live in New York City, and we used to stop what we were doing and clap at seven in the evening for the essential workers. And it was such an amazing outpouring of gratitude. But now, lo, these many months later, that appreciation may reside in all of us, but it's much less visible. Exactly. The nurses and clinicians have not stopped seeing the patients. The firefighters and police have not stopped answering the calls for patients in respiratory distress that may or may not have COVID. Just the level of stress individuals are dealing with are going to have massive implications for everyone's well-being, which then will put more strain back on the healthcare system through mental health needs, cardiac needs, etc. And maybe even possibly in intensity of the emotional caretaking part of the nurse's job at least during the initial phases of the pandemic, patients were often asked not to bring the usual visitors, friends, family members, loved ones in to support them. No, I think that's absolutely right in terms of what nurses are dealing with at the bedside in terms of helping patients die and helping families. To your point, many patients, especially at the start of this, only had the nurses with them for those final moments. And to our earlier comments, I'm not sure that we've provided the decompression space for what that does to an individual who has to see that and support people through that over and over again. Let's talk about what we should be doing to make this better. You've written that we should move away from thinking about a rebuild and shift instead toward an entirely new build of our nursing workforce. And specifically, Gretchen, you mentioned several areas, workforce health, workforce flexibility, reimagining care delivery models, 
and strengthening talent pipelines. So let's start with workforce, health, and well-being, both of which feel exigent right now. How can those areas be improved? Yeah, I think the areas of workforce health and well-being can be improved in a couple of ways, some of which we've touched upon. Some of it, I think, is truly societal recognition and celebration. When you hear that someone is an astronaut, the reaction is often, that is so cool, tell me about that. How do we make that be the narrative around our frontline caregivers? The second form of recognition in our society often comes financially through compensation and frankly, is another form of recognition for the role that nursing plays. There's other financial recognition that can be provided too, and has happened over time in terms of loan forgiveness from states, from federal government, from various nonprofits in support of these roles, which various parts of the community can get involved in. And then I think the recognition in the workplace, a lot of health systems do in spades, but doubling down on the basics of leadership recognition, being on the floor with nurses to understand the simple and the complicated fixes to make their lives easier. Things like making sure supplies are there on time, but also eliminating unnecessary documentation so that they can spend more time at the bedside. What about workforce flexibility? Many nurses must already work shifts. What Mm -hmm. does workforce flexibility look like in the nursing context? Yeah, I think workforce flexibility takes a few flavors. Some is flexibility in care setting. So a bit of what we discussed earlier, allowing folks the ability to have the intense experience in the ICU when they want it, but have the ability to go elsewhere, obviously all within appropriate licensure and sort of clinical standards, but getting different experiences depending on what's going on with them individually or with the rest of their lives. Health systems are often doing this through kind of regional float pools or other team-based models to allow them to do it, but more and more of this can and should happen. The pandemic obviously accelerated digital adoption in all kinds of areas, including telehealth. How might telehealth affect future care delivery and nurses' role in it? Well, I think telehealth is an example of flexibility and some of which we've seen in surveys where more nurses now say that they would like to continue to participate in telehealth. The other thing that happened during the pandemic that was interesting is more digital ways of providing patient monitoring and care, even in a setting such as an inpatient setting, where because of scarcity in PPE and wanting to minimize touch points, many facilities moved a lot of the patient monitors out into the hallway to avoid unnecessary donning of PPE and going into the room. And that actually allows for more patient monitoring at any one time. So how do you translate that into a new model? Some parts of patient care, you're never going to get rid of the human interaction, obviously. You need to do physical assessments. You need to administer medications. But how do we actually take what worked in a moment of crisis and institutionalize it further in our systems and in our technologies? Is there a possibility of hybrid work for nurses? And if so, what would that look like? I think there is the option of hybrid working for nurses in the future. Often when we think of telemedicine, you think of a parent at home worried about their kid's fever and if they should bring them in or not and and getting a telemedicine visit. But telemedicine and teleconsultations are used for a lot more complex things in the world, especially in rural hospitals, for example, if you have a patient coming in with a stroke they'll have more of a virtual consultation with a higher specialty service elsewhere. We're doing that for tele-ICU. 
etc. And individuals could operate across these care settings, again, of course, all within license requirements, but to provide flexibility. And we are seeing more from nurses that they're interested in doing telemedicine going forward. Yeah, it's interesting to think of telehealth, not just as a convenience, but as potentially a model that improves the cadence and the quality of care through more frequent monitoring or monitoring for folks in rural settings who might not otherwise make it all the way into the doctor on a more routine basis. Yeah, I think especially for um, more rural settings, it can be very effective. You talked about fungibility in care settings and regional float pools and so forth. Gretchen, you yourself went to nursing school. You're a registered nurse. But generally speaking, are the skills changing that nurses need to do their job successfully? We continue to ride the curve of technology. You know, the last 20, 25 years has been a lot of technology adoption in actual care delivery. And then, frankly, some of the administrative burden of documenting all of that. A lot of these technologies often don't fully replace how something is done, which adds workload to nurses. How do you then actually use technology to declutter what a nurse does and help get the signal through the noise of all of the alarms and all of the vitals and all of the documentation to actually help clinicians practice at the top of their license and focus on what truly matters. I think that is very exciting. And that is the promise of kind of redefining how clinical workforce can go into the future. There are longer term systemic things we can and should do in terms of strengthening the talent pipeline around encouraging students to engage in science, engage in medicine, It will also require expanding schools and clinical training spots. And we actually see health systems doing that directly because they recognize the need and aren't willing to wait for others in the ecosystem to do it. And these things are all needed to rebuild our talent pipelines and skills for the workforce of the future. But in the meantime, we need to flip the operating models that we have for our workforce now so that we're able to bridge the gap. Otherwise, I worry we're going to have a decade plus of pretty turbulent times, frankly, where we have a lot of clinical demand and a very turbulent workforce. My niece is in high school, and she recently surprised me by raising the possibility of getting an RN degree. It occurred to me when she was talking about this that we hear so much now about the importance of purpose, particularly vis-a-vis Gen Z, Do you think the pandemic has in any way created pull into the nursing field because it has surfaced as so vital and so high stakes? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. In some ways, I think the pandemic has shown a light, again, on the purpose, as you said. But also, we have seen in our own research, some nurses are more likely to stay in the profession now than they were before. We haven't actually surveyed to see if that translates into more folks interested, but we do see an increase in applications to schools going up. And I think some of that is the purpose. Some of that is just as the profession is changing and it is seen as a flexible option. It's not the full gig economy, but they can be much more flexible than your traditional office job. And in a lot of ways, the criticality of the role has been elevated for people. 
a lot of people want nothing more than to be supporting society and individuals on the biggest challenge of the day, which right now is COVID and meeting the pent-up demand that it has caused. Acknowledging that access to quality nursing care is, as you just described, in part because of COVID, such a high stakes and collectively vital issue. Are you optimistic about the potential for positive change, both for the sake of nurses and for all of us? I am quite optimistic. I think there's a lot of really bright minds trying to solve this. There's a lot of committed health systems, employers, sort of societies trying to invest and fix it. I think more than anything, there's really committed workforce who's excited to innovate, who has shown tremendous flexibility and resilience already, and will continue to do that going forward. Any suggestions for keeping this issue on the front burner, assuming COVID starts to recede? I think that there are ways as a society we can continue to recognize. And I think that's part of the power of conversations like these. We have Nurses Week in a few months. There are obviously national companies that run nurses campaigns. And there are ways that each of us as individuals or our small businesses or our large businesses can draw attention to our first responders in general, our clinicians in general, but our nurses especially through celebrations, promotions, accolades. Let's close there. Thanks so much. Thank you. You too. I hope we all have a better 2022. Roberta, so many of us have had the experience of relying just elementally on nursing care. My daughter, who is now a happy, cultish, knock-on-wood healthy six-and-a-half-year-old girl, had respiratory surgery at birth and spent almost two weeks in the surgical NICU. And those NICU nurses were just invaluable during that experience. Our family will never, never forget them. They were vital, not just to her survival, but to our own emotional stability and well-being at that time. It was incredible. I feel the same way, Lucia, and I've had the complete opposite life cycle experience of dealing with in-home care nurses for my mother when she refused to move out of the house that she had been in for, you know, some 70 years. The fact that we felt comfortable enough to have people come into our house, take care of my mother, it made the final months of her life that much more comfortable, which gave us a lot of comfort too, so... And it's horrible to see such flux within the the nursing workforce. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's vital. Yeah. You know, there's another cohort of people that are at risk of quitting, in part because they don't feel valued at work. It's our transgender colleagues. We're about to hear from David Babalal about our recent report, Being Transgender at Work. David, thanks for joining us today. And Lucia, thank you so much for having me. And I'm very excited that we're having this conversation. Acknowledging the range and the variety of experience within the trans demographic, what has our research taught us about what it's like to be trans in today's workplace? I'd like to start off with just a few facts around employment, if that works with you. 
And so if we start with employment, and unfortunately I'll start quite stark, only 73% of transgender adults are actually in the workforce compared to 82% of cisgender folks. Our survey, which we ran across a number of trans and cisgender individuals over this last year, shows that trans individuals are two times more likely to be unemployed than cisgender people, which is kind of crazy. And in the U.S. alone, almost two times as many trans people report being recently out of work. The scarcity, precarity of transgender employment can lead to loneliness, instability, alienation from the rest of the workplace. When we look at wages, candidly, equally as stark. Transgender people make far less money than cisgender people do. Average household income of a transgender adult is about $17,000 less than that of a cisgender one. And our survey showed that almost 2.5 times more likely were the transgender individuals to work in places like retail or food, which as we know, in large proportion, are entry-level paying jobs, paying the minimum wage in the US. And then when, when we take one step further, to intersectionality, when we look at folks who are marginalized in addition to being trans, right, people of color, 75% of Native American trans people and 43% of Hispanic trans people make less than $25,000, with that amount only equating to 17% of white cisgender people. Yeah, that's a dire picture, and it sounds like an urgent need to take action. The stakes are high. What are some examples of the specific challenges that trans employees confront day-to-day in the workplace. Despite the, the corporate push for more diverse workplaces, especially since the start of the racial reckoning last year, the transgender population candidly is unsupported at work. And this is more than just a matter of career progression, promotion, climbing to the top of the ladder. Whereas other populations strive to feel included in the workplace, Transgender workers want to feel safe. Being in the trans and gender nonconforming community, safety is top of mind. Safety from physical harm, from mental harm, from emotional harm. And what we're seeing in, in our data is that less than half of transgender adults are comfortable being fully open about their gender identity at work. And when we take that a step further, two thirds are uncomfortable being out with their customers and their clients. And being in a client-facing role myself, Lucia, the inability to be out with folks that I'm talking to on not only a monthly basis, but a weekly, if not hourly basis, is a lot to grapple with, especially if you're in client service. Safety is obviously fundamental. I mean, that's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? That's basic. Besides ensuring that employees feel safe, and are able to bring their full selves to work. What can leaders do to help at the enterprise level? I think step one is education and awareness. And that's my biggest goal with this report and this research. It is, I'm hoping corporate leaders, leaders of different sectors will take this report and say, I I have a reference to learn. I have a glossary that we put together to discern different words that are used in the trans community. And, And then I think you can go across the employee life cycle. Be intentional in recruiting. How can you connect with potential trans new hires? Participate in specific recruiting events. Signal to those that are coming to your firm that you are excited to be a workplace where trans individuals thrive. I think the second is think about offering trans affirming benefits. And this doesn't mean 
on one side of the spectrum, medical benefits on gender affirmative surgery or hormone therapy, right? And those are just two, but it, it's as simple ones as, do you have mental health care support for a community um, that is disproportionately affected by mental health? The third around other policies and programs like reviewing company dress codes, eliminating gender specific language, offering diversity trainings that are nuanced to gender identity. And I think the last one is an overall inclusive culture. Are the forms and documents that you ask your employees to fill out on a weekly, annual, half annual basis asking for personal pronouns? Are they asking for preferred names? Does your office have gender neutral bathrooms? You mentioned language and a glossary in the report, which seems vital, particularly because fear and confusion over language can hold colleagues back from talking about some of these issues. What are some small steps that all of us in the workforce might take to signal support for our transgender colleagues and potentially improve their experience directly on the day-to-day? There are two simple ones that come to mind for me. My teams actually practice it at McKinsey. So when we kick off a new project at McKinsey, when we start off a new team, my teams do team introductions and they ask where people are from. And within those sort of simple five to 10 questions of, you know, what's your name? Where are you from? Where did you grow up? How did you join McKinsey? There's the question of what are your personal pronouns? What is your preferred name? Those two simple questions can signal to any person in the trans community, hey, this person from the get-go seems like an ally. Any examples from your own career of allyship? I think personally, there have been a number of instances over the last year where folks have noticed my pronoun change and clients come to me. I've had senior individuals at McKinsey come to me. I have people in my building when I would wear work name tags back home and they see they, them. And inquisitive on, hey, is everything okay? How can I be supportive? Is there anything that you'd like to talk through? How can I become educated? And that's been great. And I think that that has been an opportunity for folks to engage because I'm very open about my personal pronouns. And I use those for every introduction that I actually have. Any thoughts for leaders on the best way to know that they're making progress? I think the more it comes up in conversation, you're likely doing things right. When it comes to topics of diversity that we're not used to, that makes us uncomfortable, that we're nervous to get wrong, we tend to avoid those conversations. And the more that these topics are being brought up, the more ideas that that are being brought to senior leaders, to senior team leaders on, hey, maybe we should do this for our trans colleagues. Maybe we should do this in terms of gender identity. Have we thought about offering this healthcare benefit? Have we thought about changing this policy? Have we really thought through placing a gender neutral bathroom at our factory site? As those ideas are flourishing, as folks are being more vocal about it, you're doing something right. They're open to having the conversation to advance change. David, fascinating. Thanks so much for being with us today. And Lucia, thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app, where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. 
We'll see you in two weeks.